Now, good evening. I trust you're all sufficiently rested after the very busy weekend, and uh, we're very thankful to the Lord for bringing us together again. Now, we're going to read tonight, please, in the uh, letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and uh, we're going to read in chapter 1. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians and in chapter 1. And we're going to read together one sentence out of uh, Ephesians chapter 1. That sentence runs from verse 3 to verse 14. If Paul had had my teacher, Mrs. Langworthy, when I was at school, he'd have had his knuckles wrapped severely for this. Uh, But he wrote by inspiration. It's not the first time he did it, nor was it the last uh, here in Ephesians. There's several other sentences similar. So uh, we've got one sentence. It runs from verse 3 to verse 14. And God willing, that one sentence will be the uh, topic of our studies for these three evenings. So we will read for uh, the sake of uh, context, connection, and also reference for the Word of God uh, from verse 1, just to bring in the salutation, the opening of the letter. So Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And we trust God will bless to us our study of this lovely passage of his good word. 
I suppose in many ways the Ephesian letter uh, could be seen as God's revelation to us of his blueprint for the ages. There is a tremendous amount in this epistle which is wholly dependent upon divine revelation. God, in the goodness of his heart, explaining to us what he has done and why and what he intends to do and why. That's very gracious of him. And I suppose if we were amongst that Ephesian assembly, considering what our background would have been of idolatry, uh, the Greek gods, the pantheon of gods that they had, we would have been very familiar with the idea that our former idolatrous gods, they, they were really in many ways just blown up versions of the men who worshipped them. Because man's thoughts naturally will never rise higher than himself. If man seeks to make a god, it will always be someone in his own image. So the, the Greek gods were essentially um, much mightier, of course, than their subjects, but nevertheless, they possessed all the characteristics of fallen humanity. So they got drunk, and they fornicated, and they fought, and they were capricious, and they were just turbo versions of the people who had created them and worshipped them. It must have been a tremendous impact on them. When with all the dignity of the Holy Scriptures, Paul writes a letter to them, and he speaks to them of God, our Father. There are many fathers amongst us this evening. And uh, I haven't yet met a father, particularly one who's a believer, um, who hasn't got some kind of regrets as to how he has fulfilled his role as father. Um, we don't get a trial run, unfortunately. And uh, very often we look back and we we, we just wish we could have a rerun and we wouldn't have done that and we would have done this and all the other things. Because one of the things a father wants is that he wants to raise his children uh, to reflect something of his own character. He, he's, got, he's got ideas for them. He's got plans for them. He wants to see those fulfilled. And he seeks to nurture and to train and to provide the Greeks had never had a god like that. Uh, like the Indian gods, they were all on the take. And as we say, they, they, they were just full of all their own capricious uh, sins and faults anyway. So the thought now that there is a god who is living and holy and is a father to his people was a tremendous thought for them. And now for all that to be opened up uh, before these believers so that they could begin to understand why God had done for them what he had done, what he intended for them. And in many ways, the Ephesian epistle is about how God intends, particularly by means of the church, to express his own character and his own being. We've already read just in this one sentence of the great truths of uh, election, and of predestination, and adoption, uh, and God willing will come to those in turn. But the very thought of adoption is the placing of sons. And so the idea now is that God wants through his sons to express himself as father. 
He has done it perfectly, of course, in the Son, the Lord Jesus. He that hath seen me, he said, hath seen the Father. But now that one, that same man, through his finished work, according to the Hebrew epistle, is now leading many sons to glory. And it's it's God's intention that all those sons, not to the full extent that Christ can, of course, but, but to a great degree, all those sons display the character of their father. And for that reason, probably, as you go through the epistle, you'll know, because I think you've studied it, uh, I think you've got chapters 5 and 6 coming up, have you, in your winter studies? I assume, therefore, you've done chapters 1 to 4. I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't. Some assemblies do things like that, but uh, I'm sure you've done chapters 1 to 4. And um, you'll recall how that in chapter 2, the church is seen as a building. Chapter 4, it's a body. Chapter 5, it's a bride. And um, perhaps when we think of the temple that's growing unto a holy habitation for the Lord in in the end of chapter 2, we think of how the temple was associated with glory, the light of the glory of God. Uh, And so against the thought of the church as a temple, we could think of something of the fact that God is light. It's a glorious God. And uh, whether in the tabernacle or the temple that Solomon built, he was pleased to put a representative glory there. It was associated with glory and with light. Now when you come to chapter 4 and you're thinking of a body, the primary thought then is not of light but of life. And uh, how life uh, in the church, which is his body, is the very life of God. It's eternal life. And so the church, as you know, and in the Ephesian letter, it's always the uh, dispensational church, the church of the age, the church complete from Pentecost to the rapture that's in view. Uh, And that, that body is an organism. It's endued with life that comes from above. When you come to chapter 5 and you're thinking of a bride, then obviously the thought moves from not light and life, but to love. And so in the three illustrations that are given to us in the Ephesian letter, what the church is and what the church is like, you can see that the very character of God is seen in it. God is light, God is life, and God is love. But the fact that it all culminates, as I'm sure you will see, uh, God willing, in chapter 5 in your own studies, Uh, When you come to the thought of the uh, church being a bride, a bride for Christ, if you would like just to glance at chapter 5, please, there's one or two things I'd like just to point out there. You'll notice in the There's three particular statements uh, in chapter 5. One is to do with the past, one with the present, one with the future, as far as the church is concerned. And uh, you'll see in verse 25 of chapter 5, Paul exhorts, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That was his love expressed for the church in the past. There was a time when he gave himself for it. So we owe our life to him. 
that would immediately perhaps bring to mind the Old Testament illustration of Adam and Eve. That the bride in uh, Genesis chapter 2, the wife of Eve, she owed her life to him. And uh, the very fact that God made the male and the female in the way that he did was lost on the Old Testament reader. They would have read Genesis 2. They would have wondered at the God who fashions a, a male out of the dust of the earth, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, man becomes a living soul. They would have wondered, perhaps, how God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he opened his side and removed the rib, and the rib he made woman. And they might have wondered why it all happened that way, but they would have had no understanding as to why. But thank God we know why, because he's revealed it to us. Here in the Ephesian epistle. And uh, he's revealed to us, and we'll see it in chapter 1 as well, that um, Adam and Eve weren't some kind of prototype. They were actually a representation of what was already in the mind of God concerning the church. Before ever he'd made the world, before ever he made Adam and Eve, in the heart and the mind of God, there was the church and its relationship to Christ. And so to give a figure and to give a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church, God made the first man and the first woman in the way that he did. So the creatorial order was based on God's intention from before time for Christ and the church. And so the, the, the thought, the, the whole idea of the bride being brought out of the wounded side of the man was reflected in uh, the way in which he made Eve, and that was simply to reflect the way he would bring the church into being all those many, many years later. The idea, you see, particularly, is so that the life is one, and that, that in a wonderful way, there is a complement, someone additional, someone extra, to the man, so that in the case of Eve, she might bear dominion with Adam over the works of God's hands. Now, all that was a reflection of what was in the mind of God for Christ and the church. I have to be very careful what I say here with medical people present. But um, there was a time when I stood in a, an operating theater in a hospital in India watching a dear brother who's a surgeon uh, and uh, he was showing me how they were going to uh, repair some trauma damage to the head of a young girl. She'd come off a two-wheeler. And um, they were going to fix the bone in her forehead by using rib bone. And I watched as the, uh, the dear brother, the surgeon, as he opened up the side of the girl. And uh, he explained how that he was cutting open the periosteum. Is that right? that sheath that surrounds the bone. And he cut open the periosteum, carefully removed the bone, sewed it up, put it back. He said, now apart from the accident she's had, she's a fit young lady, uh, he said, within a few months, that bone will grow again. Well, that just immediately opened up the scripture for me as I thought about it. 
Because, of course, as God, made Adam, as God made Eve from Adam's side, he took the rib, and the rib he made woman. But the rib grew again in Adam. So he was not deficient in any way. And yet, having no deficiency, he now had a, a bride, a consort, a companion, who was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She owed her life to him. Though they were two entities, they were one. And they had a combined life and a combined purpose. And God made our first parents to reflect Christ and the church. So at the end of chapter 1, we read how that Christ is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So Christ fills all in all. There is no deficiency in Christ. And yet... In the purpose of God, he's not complete without the church. So the church is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Where could that possibly have been devised except in the heart of God? And so that which he intended for the church and Christ, he reflected in the way in which he made our first parents. And the godliest of men reading the Old Testament scriptures would never have known that. But God has revealed it by grace to you and me as we read an epistle like this. So the idea then, uh, in verse number 25 of chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So that's how he's expressed his love for the church in the past. The figure is Adam and Eve. The thought is life. But then if you read in verse 29, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So that's how he's expressing his love for us in the present. He's nourishing and cherishing the church. He is... He is presiding over all the affairs of the church, which is his body, with that same sacrificial love that he displayed at Calvary. And the one who was able to save is able to keep. And so today he nourishes and cherishes and pours everything into the church. You can see it in the figure in chapter 4 as well with the body, that he has given gifts to the church, evangelists, pastors, teachers, He's bringing the whole thing to maturity and he's watching over it because he loves the church. And he's doing everything to see that ultimately the church comes to maturity and to completion. Today he is nourishing and cherishing the church. And your mind might go back again to Genesis, this time to another bride there, Rebecca. And in that longest chapter of the book, chapter 24, where, where uh, Abraham sends his servant to find a bride for Rebekah, there is such an emphasis on the bond of love between them. Especially as Rebekah comes and she sees Isaac for the first time, uh, and uh, she climbs down off the beast, she goes to him, and uh, he takes her into his tent and was comforted after the death of his mother Sarah. There was a tremendous bond of love between them, and he nourished her, and he cherished her, and that's what Christ is doing for the church today. The thought then particularly is if in verse 25, Adam and Eve are the picture and the predominant thought is life. 
Then now in verse 29, Isaac and Rebekah, the predominant thought of love. But then if we just go back into uh, verse number 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Again, if your mind goes back to Genesis, you're now thinking perhaps of another bride. And uh, she's called Azanath. She's the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And she was the bride who was given to Joseph. The days of his toil, the days of his humiliation, the days of his suffering are past. Lovely picture of Christ, as you well know, in, in Joseph. And the one who was associated first with the father's house uh, and then with, the, uh, with Potiphar's house where he was a servant and then with the prison house where he was a sufferer. He's now associated with Pharaoh's house and he's a sovereign. And now that his suffering's behind him and he's glorified, he's given a bride. And he's given a bride to share that glory. And that's the picture that we have in verse 27. And glory is in view. Light is in view. And so once again, we've got life and light and love and God expressing the fullness of his being in the church. Now, we've gone that rather circuitous route just to uh, help us understand better an expression that we have three times in the sentence that we uh, read together in chapter 1. And uh, it's the expression that divides that sentence, um, at least in terms of its subject, it divides it into three. If you look back at chapter 1, please, you'll see that in verse 6 we read, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Then if you look a bit further down the chapter to verse 12, that we should be to the praise of of his glory. Verse 14 finishes, unto the praise of his glory. We're getting the message. That the purpose of God in all of this is for the praise, the exaltation, the outtelling of his glory. It's for the praise of his glory. It's not so much for the praise of him himself, though God, of course, is very worthy of that but that it's his glory that's in view. And it's the outtelling of his glory. This is all for the glory of God. And um, for those of you who like to look at the grammatical side of the text, you will find so often that um, as you study the grammar of the passage, you'll find that the middle voice is often used. The middle voice means, grammatically, that when something is done, when a verb is in the middle voice, something that's done is being done particularly for the sake of the one doing it. So in Ephesians 1, what God is doing, he's doing for himself. He's doing because he wants to do it. There's no compulsion other than the compulsion of his own love and his own purpose. In fact, as uh, Paul has written in verse number 5, it's all according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, how would we ever have known the mind of God and the purpose of God in all these things, if he hadn't have revealed it. 
Thank God he did. And the Spirit of God revealed it to Paul, and Paul has written it. It's inscripturated in this wonderful epistle. And so Paul, particularly uh, at the outset of the epistle, wants to draw our minds and our thoughts to a God who is utterly sovereign. God does what he wants because he wants to do it for the praise of his glory. And God being God, who can deny him that? Uh, For you and me to do that would be a monument of selfishness and self-centeredness. But of course, God is righteous. God is holy. His motives, by definition, must always be pure. And so for the enjoyment of his own heart, for the praise of his glory, so that he's got a people upon whom he can bestow eternally all the benefits of his love and grace and kindness. God says, I want to show you what I'm doing. I want to show you the blueprint. I want to show you where you fit into the whole thing. And so in those expressions we've read, to the praise of the glory of his grace in verse 6, that we should be to the praise of his glory, verse 12, unto the praise of his glory, verse 14 you'll find that they break up that sentence as far as the subject is concerned. We could put it like this, that in verses 3 to 6, what is being set before us is the will of the Father. It's God the Father who's in view. It's his will. It's his purpose. The will of the Father. How has that will been realized? By what process has that will been put into action? Well, that's our next section, which, Lord willing, we'll deal with tomorrow evening. And that's from verse 7 down to verse 12. And over that little section, we could write the work of the Son. The will of the Father has been realized through the work of the Son. But then, that which the Father has willed and uh, for which the Son has done his work, is witnessed by the Holy Spirit, and he's the subject of verses 13 and 14. So as the background to, and the idea behind, the whole purpose of God in saving you and me, as that's revealed by God, he wants us to see that it is the work of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working together, all in one common purpose that's going to be for the praise of the glory of God and the eternal blessing of sinners who deserve nothing but judgment. So that's the outline, if you like, something of the background to what we're looking at. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A lovely title, full of dignity, full of honor, God who is our Father, they might say, well, how is God our Father? Well, he's going to explain that when he teaches them the truth of adoption. He gives the Lord Jesus his full title, as of course we should. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he eulogizes, that's the uh, transliteration of the first word of the verse there, Uh, to speak well of, to eulogize. He eulogizes God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us 
with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, you know, I'm sure, that uh, the heavenlies is going to be mentioned five times at least in the, in the epistle. So what Paul is anxious to show these believers and us is that though we are physical creatures here on earth, there is a, a spiritual reality which is unseen. You can think of it as a different dimension if you wish, something like that. It's a spirit realm, the spiritual realm. It is um, very, very real. And he makes reference to it through the, uh, uh, through the epistle. And he's showing us that maybe what we think is reality, us being here on earth, physical beings. He says, it's actually a greater reality than that. The, the reality of your salvation means that your stay here, which you think is the, the big thing, is actually very temporal and very temporary. He says, the real thing is that the moment you got saved, you were seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So that in the purpose of God, the one who now has eternal life by the grace of God is already in the heavenlies. Our bodies are here. We're living in them. We're here in a temporal realm. But it's all with the prospect of a full redemption and of glory. And he says, as far as God's concerned, we're already sitting there in the heavenlies. It is, by the way, the death knell to the wrong doctrine that teaches so-called second blessing and all this kind of thing. The scripture tells us we've got every spiritual blessing already in the heavenlies, in Christ. And it's all in him. That is, that God's purpose for Christ and his purpose that ultimately Christ will be all in all and when Christ is all in all, God himself will be glorified that, that the whole purpose concerning Christ involves us by grace being seated in the heavenlies with him. It's not just so much, though, with him, it's in him. You know that before you were saved, you were in Adam. It means that you were associated with everything Adam did and everything Adam was. And then when we were saved by grace, we... Uh, we die to that family. We're now in Christ. Paul explains it in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And what he's really say, telling us is this. That's not water baptism in that verse. He's teaching the doctrine of what happened when we got saved. The verse following speaks about the water baptism that expresses all of this. Know ye not that as many of us, of Adam's race, as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, the thought is we were so wholly identified with Christ that his death was our death. His burial was our burial. His resurrection was our resurrection. And so the thought of being baptized is to be immersed, submerged. We're in Christ. Everything that God purposes for Christ involves us now. And so all these blessings we have are in Christ. It's the death knell to those who say you can be saved today, lost tomorrow, and all this kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of that around in the west coast of the country where I live. Very dear believers. 
but they crawl around in fear because they really do believe that if they don't persevere, they can be lost tomorrow. And so we try and teach them as we come across them, and we do, as we come across them and converse with them, we try and convince them of the truth of these things. If there is a power in earth or hell or heaven or anywhere else, if there's a power that can actually touch Christ, then he can touch you and me. But of course, thank God there isn't. He's far above all. And so we are eternally secure in Christ. That's where all our blessings are centered, is in him. And this is all because, this is the thought of according as, this is all because, in verse 4, he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And dear brethren and sisters, it means what it says. It means that God chose you to be saved. And he chose me to be saved. And this man, standing here, unashamedly, believes in individual, sovereign election unto salvation. It's what the Bible teaches. The Bible equally teaches, of course, human responsibility. So that when a person, illuminated by the Spirit of God, sees their need of salvation, the claims of God upon them, the sufficiency of Christ to meet that need, that person is responsible before God to obey the gospel. If they do not obey the gospel, they will perish. There is no irresistible grace. The grace of God can be resisted. And if you don't believe that, you'll have a problem explaining Hebrews chapter 6, for example. So now we have this resurgence today of argument and debate and, and things going to and fro on internet fora and all this kind of thing, uh, people trying to square a circle of how, on the one hand, we can believe in the sovereign purpose of God in election and human responsibility on the other hand. And the reason there's a resurgence today is because, humanly speaking, Far more people are educated today. They consider themselves more intelligent today. But God didn't give us this to reason. He didn't give us this even to understand. He revealed it to us to believe. And that's what we must do. Because there's no dichotomy in the mind of God about this. And that's clear because the Spirit of God, who is the author of this book, he, knowing the limitations of the mind of man in his natural state, even though he is saved by grace, the natural mind of man, the Spirit of God, knowing those limitations, he will set these truths side by side in Scripture. You take Matthew chapter 11, for example. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, no man knoweth the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. A statement of absolute sovereignty. And right next to it, the Spirit of God adds the words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
All that the Father hath given me shall come unto me. A statement of sovereignty. And him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Human responsibility. And so the Spirit of God himself has taken these great truths, and there's many others like it, and illustrations of it, and he sets them side by side for us. It's as though, reverently speaking, he's saying to us, look, this is the best I can do for you. You cannot understand the mind of God. So these are things whereby we must learn and, if necessary, ask for divine help so that we submit our intellect and our thinking to the Spirit of God. We submit and recognize, though it goes contrary to the pride of our hearts, that there's things we cannot understand. Our minds are too small. God has graciously revealed them to us. Listen to what Paul said to the Thessalonians in the second letter. Chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not wonderful? How did you get saved? You say, I remember it was brother so-and-so was preaching. Well, thank God for that. Some of you maybe were saved at your mother's knee. We've all got by grace our different stories to tell. But though I don't know your story of, uh, of conversion and of how the Lord saved you, I know this. That not one of us was saved except it was by a ministry of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. None of us got saved because some, some particular evening it just clicked. We got smart. None of us was saved because this week the preacher was better than last week. These things are not able to be understood by the natural mind. So here in this particular verse, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that God has chosen, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation. How did he bring that about? It was through sanctification of the Spirit. We might call this pre-conversion sanctification. It's the Spirit of God illuminating the heart and mind of a needy sinner. That's where conviction of sin comes from. That's where clarity comes from as to how Christ can be the savior of sinners. It's not through the eloquence of a preacher. It's not through the passion he displays. It's through a sanctifying ministry of the Spirit of God. Peter puts it like this. Chapter 1, verse 2 of his first epistle he said, you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That doesn't mean, as some say, that God looked down through the passage of time, knew there would be a time you would hear the gospel, knew that you would believe it, so he chose you. It doesn't mean that. That tips the thing on its head. That, that makes God responsive to what I do. He's simply teaching that the foreknowledge of God is that we were already in a place of divine favor. God set his love upon us. 
And in having set his love upon us, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience. So the work of the Spirit of God is to bring the sinner to a point where all he or she has to do is exercise the obedience of faith. Down through the course of time, God has never set a man a riddle in order that he might be justified. Justification is always by faith. Faith always has an object. And so at the beginning, when God tested Adam, would he be obedient or would he not? And so when the gospel is presented to men and women today by grace, its claims upon us are made clear by the Spirit of God We're left at a point where we now have to exercise the obedience of faith. The moment we do, says Peter, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In Scripture, where you read of blood being shed, in the Old Testament sacrifices, the pictures that they present of the work of Christ, where you read of blood being shed, it's to meet the claims of God. Where you read of blood being applied, it's to meet the need of man. So whether it's the blood being applied to the doorpost and the lintel in Exodus 12, or whether it's the blood being uh, sprinkled before and on the mercy seat uh, in, in, say, Leviticus 16, blood shed meets the claims of God. Blood applied meets the need of man. And so Peter says the way you got saved was that it was in the heart and the mind of God from before time. It was made real in time by the ministry of the Spirit of God, that sanctifying work. He brought you to the point of obedience, and when you obeyed by faith, then all the wonderful efficacy of the blood of Christ was reckoned to you. So he says to the Thessalonians, Paul now, God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That was your part in it. So God worked to bring us to the obedience of faith. Where there was belief of the truth, it was through him calling you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The younger men particularly, it's not totally confined to them, but the younger men particularly, students of the word, are the ones who tend to be up all hours of the night battering away on the keyboard arguing about election backwards and forwards across the internet. Can I appeal to you, my dear brother? Stop it. Just stop it. And ask the Lord to give a humble heart and the ability to bow our intellect to the Spirit of God and what the Word of God says, believe it. God chose. Now, he has to have chosen Because in chapter 2, he's building a building. He is actually in the process of building a building. Living stones. And eventually, that building is going to be topped out by Christ. He's both the cornerstone of the foundation, and he's the headstone of the thing as well. Now, without being in the least bit flippant, and I certainly hope without any hint of irreverence, God isn't waiting until the end of the church age to look at this great pile of living stones and say, now what can I build out of this? My grandsons love building the Lego. And there's a plan there. And there's a number of bricks there. And they follow the plan and they finish the thing. That's what God's doing. 
Let him be God. The whole epistle is about that. It's about the sovereign purpose of a God who, unlike the Greek gods, is not capricious and he's not changing his mind from one day to the next. God has got one wonderful purpose that spreads across the whole span of time and by grace he's revealed it to us. And he said, from the beginning of the world, I had the, from before it, I had the church in mind and you as members of it and we were chosen. And because God chose us, it did not mean that he consigned irrevocably others to a lost eternity. He's neglected nobody who deserves to be saved because nobody deserves to be saved. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? And so the fact that God has saved any is to the glory of his grace. So we bow before it. We recognize we will never, this side of eternity anyway, down here we're never going to understand it. The two things to us seem diametrically opposed, but they make perfect harmony in the heart of God and we seek to bow and believe it. And the purpose of it all is that then we should be holy and without blame before him. You see, Paul is writing from the point of view that uh, the fall of man was no surprise to God. And chapter 2 gives us some indication of the tremendous distance that sin opened up between man and his God. For we who are from a Gentile background, I judge most of us, if not all, we who are from a Gentile background, listen to what he says, without God, without hope in the world. With respect, there's none of us has got the slightest handle on just how shocking sin is in the sight of God. Just how much it has alienated us. Just as we cannot comprehend the heights of the righteousness and the holiness of our God. And the fact that he devised in his great heart of love a plan that would enable him to reconcile to himself sinners like that and reconcile them to himself at no expense at all to his own righteousness. It's a wonderful thing that in the heart of God, before time began, he chose people who would one day stand before him holy and utterly without blame. You can see how it's all focusing on the work of Christ. I wasn't reading carelessly. I think I was reading according to the sense of the text, though not all would agree, not all commentators. But I think at the end of verse 4, the qualifying expression in love is probably linked with verse 5 rather than with verse 4. So those who stand before him holy and without blame, it tells us of them, in love he has predestinated us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. A righteous God who had the burning desire in his heart of love that wretched sinners should be his sons. We don't understand the depth or the height of these things. We can't. But you know, a little meditation upon them produces worship in the heart. Can you see what God is doing through these inspired scriptures? He's revealing his heart to us. He's telling us why he did things. He's telling us where you and I fit into his whole great purpose. 
It's no coincidence that you're a believer. It's no coincidence that the gospel came into your life. It's no coincidence that we're here, that the whole thing is wonderfully planned out in the heart of a sovereign God. And so those whom he has chosen and those whom he has called and justified, if we went back to the Romans chapter 8, those he has predestinated. Now, predestination is not election. Election is not predestination. Predestination has got nothing to do with getting saved. It's all about what God intends for those he has saved. And predestination, wherever it's used in the New Testament, is about that. And it's about the fact that, that those whom God has saved, he intends not only for us to be delivered from the penalty of our sins and the power of sin, not only delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son of his love, not only that we should be in heaven, not only even that we should be his sons, but ultimately that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's intention and purpose for you and for me is that soon we're going to be in full conformity to the likeness of Christ. Why? Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. He's doing it for himself. That's what he's explaining to us. He says, it's not just I'm doing it for you in love. He says, I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it because I want to do it. I'm doing it because that's my heart. He, he's showing us, he's revealing God to us. This is the heart of the God we adore, the God we worship. He is destined, predestined. He's marked out beforehand that we should receive, we should receive the adoption of sons. That's the thought now of being placed as sons. Not so much in the family of God. We're children in the family of God, born again as children into the family of God. We're seen, therefore, as infants growing up. But this thought now of the adoption of sons it is that we're placed as sons in the matter of, may I say, God's business, his purpose, what he's about. Do you remember the first recorded words of the Lord Jesus when he was here? Wist ye not? I must be about my father's business. It's the language of a son. See, there might be families here where father and son work together in the same business. And you can imagine how on a particular morning, perhaps it's a day when there's going to be quite an important board meeting or something like that, if it's a substantial business, and um, if the father and son meet together for breakfast, you can imagine the language will be family language. Morning, Dad. How you doing, son? Maybe give him a pet name that he's had all his life. It, it's the language of the family. But that wouldn't be appropriate around the boardroom table, would it? You know, particular titles would be used, and, and, and the language changes because they're there in a in a different relationship. They're still father and son, but now it's not to do with the family, it's to do with the work. And so that while we're children in the family, born again into the family of God, uh, we're also involved in the work of God. P 
Peter would make that clear in 1 Peter 2. We're a royal priesthood. It's our responsibility to show forth the virtues of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in that work, we're seen as sons. We're given a position of responsibility. Not sons and daughters, sons. Because the son reflects the will and the character of the father. And adoption has placed us there. He wants us to be one with himself in the work that he's doing. And it's all according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. That expression, I think, is only used once before in the uh, New Testament. I think it's in Luke chapter 1, where the angel declares to Mary, she's highly favored. Highly favored. And so, for the praise of the glory of God's grace, he has made us highly favored in the beloved. We've had the first glimpse in these three meetings, God willing, for all the inability of this poor preacher to put it into words that we can really comprehend to lift the soul. But all that we would go away and just read that passage, meditate upon it, and get something of a grasp of the immensity of divine purpose toward us. The love, the grace, the kindness that God has shown toward us in Christ and the purpose he has behind it all. We'll be looking tomorrow evening in the will of the Lord at verses 7 to 12. And we'll see something about how that plan, that purpose on the part of the Father has all been enabled through the work of his beloved Son. So we trust God will bless to us our little study this evening and give us an appetite for the word for tomorrow as well. May God bless his word. Shall we pray?